give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Okay, great. Well, uh, friends, welcome to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. Um, today is the um, 22nd of January. Uh, if you read the bourgeois press, it looks like the world has completely changed and we're in a different uh, place entirely. Uh, but you're also in uh, the same place as you were last week. You're with us on Give the People What They Want with Prashant from People's Dispatch, Zoe from People's Dispatch, and me, Vijay from, Glo from Globetrotter. Um, Zoe, you had something you want to start us off with? Yes. Well, I wanted to point out that this week we have a new logo, thanks to the lead designer at Tricontinental, Tings Chuck. It's amazing. Check it out. And we're also our technical support, which I wanted to point out, our producer, Surangia, who's doing all of the behind the scenes work to make this a podcast, to make it a live stream and to keep giving the people what they want. So shout out to those amazing comrades. Well, uh, it's you know necessary uh, for us to say that on the 20th of January, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the president of the United States of America. Whatever one might think, it's still the most powerful country with the largest military and so on. And therefore, the whole world was watching to see what was going to happen at Was in Washington D.C. Um, January 6th, we saw a bunch of ruffians come in and and uh, take charge of parts of the city. Well, here, uh, you know, the bourgeois media was telling us that Biden has restored the republic already. Uh, Zoe, is the uh, US republic restored? And is the United States of America once more the greatest country in the world? Um, well, actually, Vijay, news just in imperialism has actually ended. Um, the US is no longer going to invade uh, sanction or, in, yeah, attack any other countries. We are in a new uh, decade. We're in a new age. It's really exciting. Um, the U.S. is once again on top, and it just has its own um, clout to maintain its power. So it's a great it's a great day. It's been a great week, I think, all around. Um, but <laughs> on a more serious note, I think, um, no, none of this is true. And, uh, you know, of course, we've seen the liberal bourgeois media, um, the corporate media, as our friend Sainath uh, likes to say, um, being, you know, really applauding this transition. Um, it's interesting what you say, Vijay. The words that they've said is like the restoration of the Republic, uh, America's back. Um, and I think what we know and what all of our friends around the world who are struggling and on the ground know is that America being back is not something to applaud. Um, it never went away, but uh, perhaps the more refined uh, version of doing, uh, of bombing countries, of intervening in other countries is maybe back. Um, Biden, of course, will not maybe take to Twitter um, to be harassing other countries in the same way that Trump was. But we've already seen in his first week that there's been a pretty strong commitment to carrying forward um, some of the, 
you know, reprehensible policies that Donald Trump took out. Um, for example, uh, you know, there is some hope, I mean, reserved hope, but there was some hope that there would be maybe some shift, for example, in the policy towards Venezuela, for example. Um, Carlos Vecchio, Juan Guaido's uh, in-charge representative in the United States was invited to the inauguration, which I think is a very strong, uh, sending a very strong message. Um, and of course, Blinken, the Secretary of State, has already uh, told media that they will continue to recognize Juan Guaido, which of course, you know, as we know, as of January 5th, Juan Guaido is not even an elected representative. Um, so what does this even mean? Um, and I think, you know, of course, in domestic policies, we might see a, 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 an improvement. We are seeing an improvement in certain ways. Um, Biden's, um, you know, economic recovery plan does include uh, responding to the demand that unions and people uh, in workplaces have been demanding for the past, you know, several years, which is a $15 minimum wage. So this is a huge victory, of course, for organized labor, for organized people's movements. Um, we can't see it as just Biden, you know, doing a charitable deed. This is, of course, a people's movement's victory. And so we'll see some shifts, I think, in domestic policy and supporting the population, especially given that you know, over 400,000 people have died from coronavirus. They have to kind of take some policies uh, to ensure that people are going to get vaccinated, to ensure that people can stay home, because it is, it's more than anything, I think, for Biden and for the U.S., it's a global embarrassment that the richest country in the world has such an abominable policy. But um, I think we're going to see that many of the foreign policy orientations are going to remain the same approach on China still going to remain um, as an aggression. I think I recommend people to check out the tricontinental dossier twilight um, on the position of the U.S. with regards to the rest of the world and its declining authority, but, you know, of course, all these other issues. So I think that's a little bit of the landscape that we can be looking at in terms of Biden, the U.S., and what does this mean for the rest of the world. I think what you say is quite true about the domestic policy because on the first day he goes straight to the Oval Office, signs executive orders that were humane. I mean, the, the thing is that Trump was so abominable. Uh, Trump pushed such horrible policies that if Biden just returns to the level of U.S. normalcy, it's it's an improvement. Uh, you're quite right. One shouldn't forget that, though. You know, there, there will be people domestically in the U.S. that will benefit but, I mean, I just want to say that if there is domestic unrest in the U.S., it makes it harder to operate overseas. So quelling domestic unrest sometimes will enable more efficient use of U.S. power overseas. So be careful, people. Don't have too many illusions, I suppose. Um, you know, having too many illusions... Last year, I was quite surprised to read that in Tunisia last year... There were 6,500 protests recorded last year. 6,500 protests in a country like Tunisia, which was, you know, the success story of the Arab Spring from 10 years ago. It was the 10th year anniversary of the Arab Spring. We've already commemorated that. Um, hard to uh, for people to absorb this, you know, that what's happening in Tunisia is actually what's happening around the world. Anti-austerity type protests. Prashant... You've been covering this in People's Dispatch. What's the story behind the uprising in Tunisia? Absolutely. It's interesting because we were talking about, of course, 
the United States and its, uh, you know, its deviation from the so-called normal and its return to that. And in Tunisia, what we're seeing is, in some senses, another aspect of that playing out because the protests that we're talking about started on the anniversary of the resignation of Zen Labdin Ben Ali, the long-term president, dictator of Tunisia, who was overthrown in the Arab Spring. And after all these years, the Tunisian people are on the streets because they feel that the most basic slogans that they had fought for during the Arab Spring, which is employment, freedom and dignity, that is one of the you know, mobilizing slogans at that time. That is nowhere close to being achieved. And the numbers themselves show it because if you look at, say, the 15 to 25, a 15 to 25 age group, over 36 percent of the uh, young people there are unemployed. And this is really a sign that, you know, leaders across the world, people uh, need to take a look at movements, take a look when, when you have such a young population, 36 percent of these young people without jobs. And even those with jobs often in temporary employment, in seasonal employment, at a time like this, corruption is uh, corruption is high. There is complete political chaos. During for most of last year, Tunisia was in utter political chaos, and all the promises of the Arab Spring for these young Tunisians seem to have been betrayed. So our reporters have been talking to activists of the Workers' Party of Tunisia, for instance, who have high, very clearly highlighted the fact that this is basically an issue of all these promises being completely uh, not met, of complete betrayal. And it's an interesting thing because I think across the world, what we're seeing is that the COVID-19 pandemic, we've talked about this before, the COVID-19 pandemic is actually brought to the fore the structural weaknesses of this neoliberal model of development that you're referring to. That, you know, everything that was uh, wrong and brutal about this has come out with even more force in a country like Tunisia is a perfect example because tourism used to provide a huge amount of, uh, say, revenue, livelihoods that collapsed. And often all it takes is, say, a few months or many months of, say, a lot of a lot of aspects of society and life being closed. And then you realize how fragile the model that you have, the lack of a model basically is for the people. And so we saw hundreds of th thousands of people take to the streets, actually, from January 14th onwards. The security forces are responding with a great amount of brutality. The reports say that over 1,000 people have been detained or arrested. Many of the minors, which is, again, very indicative of the kind of protests that we're seeing. There was an incident of police violence on a shepherd, very similar to the incident 10 years ago, of course. And all this is basically, I think, brought out to the people of, uh, you know, to the, to the entire world. And like you said, it's a very interesting protest also to see because Tunisia was considered one of the few success stories of the Arab Spring. We saw what happened in Egypt. We saw what happened in many other countries where it started, but Tunisia had transitioned into democracy. But this transition has been really, it has not really gone as deep. It has not brought the answer, the aspirations of the people. The president and prime minister responded in the most uh, uh, conventional or mundane way, saying, we understand your concerns, but those really don't, you know, those really don't cut it as far as these youth are concerned. So uh, these protests are, I think, very significant to keep a look at. Like you said, over last year, especially in, for instance, the Tatooine region, there's been a huge amount of uh, protests over unemployment. These issues have been building up. So we're definitely likely to see more happening in this country. We know what happened in Algeria, neighboring Algeria, of course. The youth mobilized strongly to overthrow another long-time ruler. So youth power, very central to this movement right now.
Yeah, and, and we shouldn't forget that staying on the continent of Africa, we last week talked about the election in Kenya, where Bobby Wine... Um, in you Uganda. Know, pardon? In sorry, Uganda. In, in Uganda, sorry. Bobby Wine, um, you know, was uh, uh, is under house arrest. Um, the uh, median age in Uganda is about 16 years old. That means half the population is under 16. Um, Museveni, you know, has been in power for, I don't know, what is it, 20 some 30, years? 36 30, years, yes. 36 years, good God. Yeah. 36 years Museveni has been in power. Uh, Museveni has been in power longer than twice the median age of, of Uganda. That's incredible. Um, so the question of youth having their voice heard, whether it's in Uganda or Tunisia, this is a very salient issue. Um, you know, there's protests and we'll come back, I know, to the protests in Pakistan because I think there's a belt of protests that we're going to look at. But I wanted to just quickly come to the other side and, and say, if we cross the Atlantic, um, you know, we, we have been covering, you've covered it at People's Dispatch, the disgraceful episode in Brazil, in the state of Manaus, disgraceful. Um, you know, as a reporter, it's hard not to editorialize. I don't know how any reporter can report on what's happening in Brazil uh, with a so-called objective, uh, you know, voice. It's not possible. Um, the fact that a government can be given advance warning of uh, oxygen, um, you know, running out by a private contractor, it shows you how in these countries privatization has really destroyed health systems and so on. And the government reacted to that plea with such callousness, you know. In fact, you know, as, as uh, you wrote at People's Dispatch, the Venezuelan government sent oxygen to Manaus, a, state in Brazil, a city in Brazil, faster than the government in Brasilia did anything, you know. Um, so on the People's Dispatch website, there's a statement that uh, Noam Chomsky and I wrote about this, and I'd, I'd ask people to go and take a look at it because... The point is what Chomsky and I talk about there is that this is not something about Manaus. This is not even something about Brazil. It's about the criminal, criminal incompetence of these governments in the United States, United Kingdom, India, Brazil, and so on. And, and you know, there may be time to impanel a citizen's tribunal to start collecting information. Because as you know, amnesia is the greatest enemy of the people and we cannot allow the evidence of any of this um, you know to to be lost so I, I just hope that um, when we think about the protests in Uganda uh, when we think about the protests in Tunisia when we think about the deep despair in Brazil uh, people are despairing the mood is despair not even uh, people coming on the streets and so on so I, I, I just think we need to have this on our radar we can't forget the criminal incompetence of the governments. I mean, I want to come back to protests, Prashant, because in Pakistan, look, you know, we, we've seen protests happen periodically. Uh, this is something very interesting, and, and I was very happy to read the story at People's Dispatch because it's not getting covered outside Pakistan much. Um, you know, a doctor is killed. Um, as far as I know, nobody knows who killed the doctor. And people are outraged. You know, why are people outraged because a doctor is killed? I mean, doctors might get killed all the time, but this is a pandemic. A doctor is killed during the pandemic. Why are people upset? Exactly. So we're talking about Dr. Waliullah Dabar, of course, who was 
killed on the 16th of January. Like you said, there's no clarity on what exactly happened. It's like often happens in the region. It's attributed to uh, unknown gunmen, which is a very convenient term, of course, because it it just it's out in the air. There have been protests by doctors. There have been protests by the Pashtun Tafuz movement. This happened in North Waziristan. The larger issue here, of course, is this culture of impunity that has been going on for many, many years right now. And the Pashtun Tafuz movement or the Pashtun Protection Movement actually emerged in response to this because the kind of environment that has been created by the Pakistani state, you know, which has actually over time at various points of time supported the Taliban, supported other extremist outfits. All of this, of course, also aided by the United States and its allies as well. And the kind of impact it has had on the people's lives there was a huge issue with landmines. In fact, that was one of the original demands of the Pashtun Tafuz movement that they wanted the removal of landmines because they were causing that amount of damage to the people. There's been innumerable disappearances, uh, tens of thousands of disappearances, so many extrajudicial killings that have taken place. And the uh, in this region, that's the Khyber Pakhtunwa uh, province, the Pashtun community especially has been mobilizing time and again despite immense repression by the state. And it's important to note that one of the most prominent leaders of this movement, Ali Wazir, is still in prison. So he was arrested in December of very vague charges of, you know, talking against the state. He's been, uh, his family, this is a horrible family history of continuous attacks by militants, continuous repression by the state. He was arrested last year also. Other leaders of the movement, again, arrested, imprisoned on uh, various very frivolous charges. Of course, Ali Wazir is a member of the National Assembly of Pakistan and he is still in prison on these charges. Uh, it's been over a month right now. And I, I believe even now protests are going on in many parts of the world among the community, demanding his release. And in this context, exactly the assassination of a doctor, I think may, paints an even more poignant picture because I believe he was returning back from seeing patients. And, you know, here is somebody who's in, in, in the course of his duty being killed by something is, at one level, something as vague as, you know, an unidentified government, but is at a very concrete uh, level, a result of state policies, a result of the kind of oppression and systematic collusion that the state has, you know, been doing along with these militias, along with these, say, armed elements for their own geostrategic issues. So I think this is one of those issues which we some often forget because people just tend to keep Afghanistan, Pakistan, those regions aside as, oh, you know, it's too complicated to talk about. But like we often come back on this show, the human cost is really, really disturbing and depressing. You know, it's interesting, you know, we've covered these regions. I mean, you know, I, I've covered that whole belt from um, uh, the northern Pakistan out to uh, the Mediterranean and there's a way in which people talk about these assassinations. You know, people will say, you know, the power did it. Vague things like this. Everybody knows, has an idea who did it, but you can't really pin it down. I mean, I remember my dear friend Salim Shahzad, who was murdered by the Pakistani government uh, by in the naval building in, in Karachi. You know, Salim used to always say things like that. You know, the power did it. The power did it, you know, uh, the, the power did it. And I would say, what do you mean? And he said, you, we all know who did it. You know, this is a shorthand. And the anger comes, I think, from that, is that there's no way to even pin it down, you know, and it's frustrating. So Salim was murdered outside, his body was thrown outside Karachi. He was on the trail of Bin Laden. He was killed in, in 2011. 
uh, young reporter. We were colleagues at Asia Times. Um, and, you know, we still don't know exactly who killed him. You know, there's no clarity. So, you know, here it is, the power once more. Um, Zoe, I, I believe, by the way, that uh, you are once again going to cover an election. Um, and uh, this is an election that's going to take place very soon in Ecuador. Uh, what is happening in that Ecuadorian election? Yes, um, well, hopefully all goes well and I'll be able to cover the elections. Um, <laughs> but it's a really uh, important election that's uh, going to be, you know, a determining factor for both the future of Ecuador, but also um, in the region, because, of course, this this election um, is one is you know, part of a series that's happening across Latin America, which we kind of see the beginning of with, with uh, Bolivia, Venezuela, we have Ecuador now in February, um, Chile and Peru, which are happening in April. And essentially, um, these are presidential elections as well, uh, just general elections with uh, the assembly also being voted on. And um, the past four years in Ecuador have been, you know, characterized by most as a uh, betrayal uh, as, um, you know, complete turn, a 180 turn on um, what uh, had been happening in the past, you know, decade. Um, Lenin Moreno, of course, was uh, elected, took office in 2017. He was supposed to be the predecessor and continuing the legacy of Rafael Correa and the Citizens Revolution, which, of course, is not exempt from criticisms, but was very integral in putting people's needs first, in developing a national economy in Ecuador, in, uh, you know, favoring regional integration, in participating in instances such as ALBA, uh, in UNASUR, in all these regional integration me mechanisms which seek to counter U.S. hegemony within Latin America. And I think this is really key because one of the first things that Lenin Moreno does when he takes office um, is not the first thing is not the IMF deal, which I'll get to in a second, but it is, you know, taking a very close uh, position with the United States. And so, um, for example, with regards to Venezuela, so Ecuador has always has been a historic ally of Venezuela, especially during the progress, you know, the first decade of the 2000s. Um, but what we see with Lenny Moreno is that he, uh, uh, you know, Ecuador kind of pushes away from all of the um, support to Venezuela, joins, uh, you know, is among the ranks of the Lima group, um, recognizes uh, Guaido and takes a lot of other positions against Venezuela, speaks out against Venezuela constantly. Um, and then, of course, the economic policies that Lenin Moreno adopted during his four years have wreaked havoc. I mean, I can't understate the impact that the neoliberal policies have had in Ecuador. I mean, I think some of us saw the really distressing images in the first couple of months of the pandemic in Ecuador when in Guayaquil, people's bodies were just strewn on the, on the streets because there was nowhere to put them because the public health infrastructure collapsed and there was no... Uh, wait for people to be treated. The ICUs were overrun. Um, I mean, the the precarious work and the you know sector has greatly increased. Pe protections for people's um, labor rights have just completely been um, pulled back. Um, 
And I mean, there's also been, you know, geostrategic agreements with the United States. So, for example, there have been talks of the Galapagos Islands, which many of us know for its incredible importance for biodiversity, for scientific research, as being used for the United States in one of their, um, I'm not remembering exactly now, but one of their strategic kind of um, bases. Um, so this has been the government of Lenny Moreno, getting closer to the United States, implementing aggressive, uh, backward neoliberal policies. Um, and now these elections have been extremely conflicted. I mean, there's been numerous attempts by the establishment, by institutions to prevent um, the ticket of the citizens' revolution, which is represented by a new coalition of left parties. Um, uh, but Rafael Correa was originally supposed to serve on the ticket as vice president. He, of course, his through a, a number of legal mechanisms, I think Ecuador is one of the countries where lawfare has been, you know, rolled out on a, a, a level that's, you know, unseen. Um, and so uh, Rafael Correa was disqualified from participating. They use all these very bizarre um, legal, you know, mechanisms, etc. And now, and even the ticket of uh, Andres Arauz and his um, running mate, Rascaval, uh even they had a lot of difficulties being registered. And so, I mean, the Ecuadorian elites know that this is the ticket that is, um, you know, winning approval of the majorities because of what they've put the people through for these past four years. Um, they already have a very high approval rating. Um, but, you know, there's even been corruption scandals with regards to elections leading up to the, I mean, the elections are happening on February 7th. Um, you know, but just last week there was a, you know, million dollar corruption scandal involving false printing of the election ballots because it's not an electronic voting system there. And so they, you know, messed up one of the logos and there goes, you know, some millions of dollars. Um, so I think we definitely have to be looking out to these elections, supporting, I mean, the Ecuadorian people and their right to choose and elect who they want to elect. Um, and hopefully this will mean a rolling back of neoliberalism, a rolling back of pro-U.S. stances and hope for the Ecuadorian people. Well, I just reported a story which makes that a little more doubtful because this is a story about how Mr. Moreno in the last weeks before um, the election has cut a very interesting deal with the United States government. You see, Rafael Correa had borrowed roughly $5 billion from Chinese banks uh, for infrastructure projects, including uh, some dams and so on. And the Chinese banks made it very clear that there was no need to do any debt payment. Uh, they said you can wait till March 2020, which means the timetable will run till 2029. And Lenin Moreno went on Twitter and celebrated this. But the next minute, he cut a deal with the U.S. government. So the U.S. government is going to provide Ecuador with the money to pay off the Chinese debt. And the quid pro quo is then Ecuador will not use Chinese telecommunications companies. I mean, it's a really scandalous thing which will trap whatever administration comes in um, when it's inaugurated. They will be trapped into this deal. So, I mean, this is the way they play. You know, uh, it's fascinating. And, of course, this is one of those stories, zero reporting. Uh, you know, I mean, I... I, if I Talked to lots of people in, in Ecuador, tried to build the story, and I just couldn't find stuff, uh, you know, that was publicly available. Um, and, you know, it's one of those great 
instances where the U.S.-China tussle, particularly this U.S.-imposed tussle, uh, is finding a battlefield, as it were, in Latin America. And, you know, people in Ecuador might want to have a cheap and good quality mobile network. Uh, you may not be able to get it. They may have to go with a U.S. provider, which is, you know, second-rate uh, technology compared to Huawei and ZTE. So anyway, it's part of the story. And I'm sure when you're in reporting the election, this may be somewhere in the very far back, although I doubt anybody will mention it. Uh, these sort of big things don't get mentioned. Um, meanwhile, it's important to say that we're talking about China and, and the U.S. And, and South America. The Chinese government, as Trump got on his helicopter and then got on Air Force One to fly to Florida, the Chinese government decided to do some mischievous things, um, you know, amusing things in a way. Uh, People's Dispatch reported... Well, one of them is a sober thing, asking the U.S. to come back to the Iran deal. Let's leave that. Everybody's asking about that. It's the other thing that I found quite interesting. Guys, what has People Dispatch reported about what China is saying about this other thing? Right. It's uh, kind of crazy. Zoe, you want to take a lead on that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they basically sanctioned uh, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and 27 other members of the administration of uh, former president, weird to say that, right? Um, <laughs> former president Donald Trump, um, you know, for very just... Um, things for violating China's sovereignty and being responsible for U.S. Uh, moves on China-related issues. And I think, I mean, this is fair, to be honest. They've been harassing China for the past couple of years, calling, you know, the worst pandemic in history, the China virus. I mean, just saying unconscionable things and having no, no backlash, no nothing, not facing any um response from this so honestly i mean as they say in that musical they had to come in well but it's it is interesting that you know the united states has got unilateral sanctions against i don't know how many individuals including probably the entirety of the venezuelan government the sitting government of venezuela and I thought it was quite interesting to see another country sanction U.S. officials. You know, um, you know when the when the International Criminal Court tried to even open a case about war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, possibility of an investigation of U.S. troops committing war crimes, the United States sanctioned the lead prosecutor Fadi Ben Souda, uh, and then you know went ahead and sanctioned her family and said they can't come to Disneyland and so on. You know, that level of, of basic vindictive cruelty. Well, I suppose the Chinese just turned around and said, Mike Pompeo, you're not welcome in Beijing. You, you can't come to Shanghai. Um, you, you, you won't be on the boards of American companies that are dying to do business in China and so on. Very interesting development. Never seen anything like it. Right. Actually, Vijay, also important to note that they waited till the government went down because... Again, it's an example of sobriety that, you know, they could have done this before, but I think they were trying to send a signal that, you know, they don't want to, they're very clear on certain things as well. So it's an interesting look into Chinese policy as well. And I think, you know, political scientists will spend, write MA papers on this uh, theme of the new sanctions world we, we are living in. I think it's quite amusing. Well, you've been... Um, 
listening to, watching, uh, give the people what they want with Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch and myself, Vijay from Globetrotter. We come to you every week on Friday. We're live on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're also a podcast uh, available on all the usual platforms. We'd really like to hear from you. We want you to tell us um, we want you to affirm that this is, in fact, the best global news program on the Internet. Uh, we only want praise, please, uh, unless your criticism is, is, is constructive. Um, here we are every Friday for you, uh, giving you what you want. That's why our show is called Give the People What They Want. See you next week. Thanks a lot.